At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Welcome to Healthcare Americana, coming to you from the Freedom Doc Studios. I am your host, Christopher Habig, the CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We talk to innovative clinicians, policymakers, patients, caregivers, executives, and advocates who are fed up with the status quo and have a desire to change it. We take you behind the scenes with people across America that are putting patients first and restoring trust in American healthcare. Today, we're going to be diving into the topic of data. Data can be a dirty four-letter word to a lot of different people. And I know I've said that before, but when we talk about healthcare data, what does that mean to patients? What does that mean to systems? What does that mean to doctors? Because all three of those audiences have different uses for it. Some people want to see, hey, is there trends in this data? Can I monetize the data? Is the data actually saying that I'm being healthier? You can probably pick out which of those stakeholder groups represent the clearest path to goal on each one of those different categories. Today, we're talking to Troy Bannister, CEO of Particle Health. Troy, welcome to Healthcare Americana. It is a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me here. Now, data, like I said, the old joke is not to go you know, completely like Mark Twain on you, that there's lies, there's damn lies, and there's <laughs> statistics. But data can be this dirty four-letter word, especially when you say to a physician, hey, I'm just here for the data they might tell you to get the hell out. How did data become relatively corrupted in the minds of doctors and, and you know providers when they say, I don't even want to use that word in my office anymore? That's a good question. I think uh, there, I'd say there's a few different reasons why there might be bad connotations with data. I think number one is there's bad people out there that use data for bad reasons. And there's a whole world of it. Uh, data brokers, black market, phishing, data breaches. It's all over the place. I think this year there was, I can't even remember the number, some staggering amount of hospitals were hit with these crazy viruses that lock up their data and do you know, ransomware type stuff. So it, there is a whole world of data that is very bad. Let's, let's be clear about that. I think the other side of it is as a provider, I just want to care for my patients. I don't want to deal with data or technical loopholes or hurdles or bottlenecks. I just want to have the best time to treat patients the best I can and do my job. I actually remember that from when I was doing med school. There's a lot of crap you have to deal with as a doctor, and there's actually a very little amount of time you can actually do the work of a doctor as a doctor. So data is just another thing on your list that you have to worry about, whether it's the regulations to have to share data back with, you know, for interoperability and, and data sharing and, and meaningful use or High Trust Act. There's a lot of the, these connotations, I think, associated with data. At the end of the day, data is meaningless, though. What really matters is the information that can help you make better decisions and make your life easier. With the right data at the right place at the right time, you can automate tasks, you can make decisions better, you can get paid a representative amount for the work that you're doing and the care that you're giving and the quality that you're reporting. There's a lot of good stuff on the other side too, but I'd say there's a lot of connotations because there is a lot of bad stuff happening with data out there. I, I want to just like start fist pumping based on what you said. I was like, yes, finally, that's the first time I've heard somebody who's in it saying, yeah, there's a lot of bad ways you could take this, but look at 
all the amazing things it opens up. And I think the bridge there, the key point to me of what you said was we have to make it easy, right? It has to be easy to be able to use it to actually enhance care, enhance the ability of the physician, not just be burdensome. And all too often it is seen as a burden. It is like, I, what do you mean I, I can't actually look my patient in the face because I have to have all these different codes in here. I have to have all these different computer systems in here. Wouldn't it be nice if I could actually interact with my patient and then be able to have the data tell me a story that might not be there on the surface? Wouldn't that be the perfect world? That is the problem. So when I started this company five years ago, I thought if we built a really simple tool where you put in someone's name and you got all their medical records back in under a minute for an affordable price. I was like, I'm going to retire. Like that is, that is the thing people have been talking about for like years and years and years. It's like this, this interoperability is the word people use, right? Which is a hundred different definitions. That's not true. Uh, we built it. I'm not retired. And the reason is we are very good at going and finding a patient's whole longitudinal record from every corner of the United States. But that's not helpful to a physician at the point of care that has 10 minutes with the patient, right? Going through 150 different files, looking for that one medication to help you decide if you should do this prescription or not do this prescription, it's, it's cumbersome and it actually adds to the problem. Of, it makes the decision-making harder. So the problem that Particle is solving is exactly what you're talking about. It's, yes, we need to go access all that patient information, but we also need to derive an insight that supports a faster, better decision. You can't have one or the other. You have to have both. And that is a more comprehensive problem set than just interoperability in general, this word that gets thrown around all the time. A lot of people focus and say, well, this is data, data, data. When in reality, like you can geek out of this, but what they're really talking about is just information. And I think what you just said, like we can collect all this information, but it doesn't really become data until we can actually put it to use and drive those insights from it. I guess where I'm going with this, you know, what role do I as a patient, what role do I play in this? Because <laughs> I'm giving, every time I see a doctor like or interact with any anything, right? Type in a Google search, I'm generating information that can then be used and turned into data. But I'm looking at that as somebody who, I don't want my medical conditions history blasted out everywhere. What role do I as a patient play in owning, accessing, seeing the information and data that I generate? You're opening up a can here, man. Uh, so I think the the I think the first kind of idiom is you know data is oil, but my car runs on gasoline, right? So like you have to be able to distill the oil to something functional, and that I think that's the difference between data and then information. And then you know driving the cars, turning left or turning right is kind of like decision making. That is you know that's kind of the layers that I think about as it relates to the patient or the consumer. There is a massive, massive problem in, in the United States today. And that is you have these rights to control the access and, and the sharing of your information, but you have no tools to do so. And that is by design. There are stakeholders out there that don't want you to be able to control your data because they are making billions and billions of dollars off of it. <laughs> That's the truth. And it's just like why TurboTax exists in the United States. Every other country in the world sends you a bill and you pay your, your taxes and then you that's it. The United States is the only country you have to guess what your bill is and then they tell you if you're wrong. <laughs> and it's because of lobbying. It's because these companies make billions of dollars. And, and it, why would we be surprised if that's different in healthcare, right? There's, this is a trillion dollar industry. It's one of the biggest industries in the entire globe. And there are walled gardens that do not want to move. So with that said, there has been a big push from the US government to try to make this happen. 
There was one uh, piece of legislation that um, Obama signed in his last, it was his last act out of office called the 21st Century Cures Act. And within that act, there was a rule called the Anti-Information Blocking Rule. And like it sounds, it's saying, hey, EMRs and doctors, you're not allowed to block access anymore. That would, be con- that would constitute info blocking. And what it basically says is consumers have the right to access their data through technically feasible ways, just as providers are today. And so here's a staggering fact for you. Doctors that use our API, all they do is they put in a patient's name, date of birth, address, phone number, and about 60 seconds later, they get all their medical records back from all the EMRs around the United States. It works very, very well. If I switch that provider out with a patient and I'm requesting my own record and I've verified my identity with a driver's license or a passport, whatever, 0% response rate. The only difference is we're switching a doctor out with a consumer. And I can get into the host of reasons why the EMRs do not respond to consumers, but they do respond to providers. But it goes back at the, ultimately to that, that reason I, I described earlier is it's expensive and they are not willing to give it up. So I love the argument here. And, I, and I, I'm a student of history, Troy, so I appreciate you giving us some, some insight into there of why we're at this point in time right now in efforts to actually improve that. And in my experience, the EMR companies will be absolutely like, oh, yeah, you own this data, not a problem, but we're going to charge you basically a, a mortgage on your house to be able to access it. Is that in the spirit of the law, the 21st Century Cares Act? It, it, 20, no. Yeah. So I got that right. Twenty first. You said the 21st Century Cares Act? Cures, yep. Cures Act. I was yep. close. All right. I get You're it. You're close. Horseshoes and hand grenades, man. Um, yes. To me, so it says like, yeah, you you technically own this data, you have access, but you're going to have to pay up for it. Yeah, there, there's a host of issues. I mean, ultimately, it's how do we make it difficult for you to access your own record? If we have to make it accessible, how do we make it difficult? One example is, and we've all probably dealt with this, these patient portals, right? Every doctor you go to has a different portal with a different username and a different password and a different website. And even if you are able to log into that, it's only a fraction of your medical record. They're not giving you the whole thing. So... This is, again, it's just, it's it's ultimately a tactic at the end of the day. That data is so valuable to these organizations that why would they not make it difficult if they could? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, there's a lot of money at stake, right? And just to just to humor me and, and if anybody else is curious, Troy, in your mind, why is that data so valuable? What are these companies doing with it? So it's a couple of reasons. One is on the, the cost side. So this is proprietary data to them. They are de-identifying it and they're selling it. And that is legal and that's ethically okay. Because it's de-identified, it's, it's not able to be traced back to you, although there's arguments to say that that's not necessarily true. So pharmaceutical companies, life insurance underwriting, disability, there are all these industries that leverage this data to, to do things that are not necessarily bad at the end of the day. If you go apply for a life insurance policy, they're going to have to underwrite it. And they could either do it by fax machine, ask you to go collect it, or just go leverage an EMR solution. So like they're going to get the data at the end of the day. I don't think it's ethically questionable. It's just a way to push the dollars to the EMRs and not anybody else. That's one reason is they make a lot of money off it. The other reasons are liability reasons. So if I'm an EMR company and I sell to doctors and, and doctors are my customers and I represent them and I want to do good things for my doctor customers that pay me a lot of money, I don't necessarily want to help with patient leakage. If I'm a patient and I can get my medical records easily and go across the street to a competitor doctor, I don't necessarily want that. Um, Another reason is malpractice. If I suspect malpractice and I can easily just pop my medical records into my iPhone and I can share that with a lawyer, that adds liability. 
There's also HIPAA breach problems. If I accidentally send the wrong record to the wrong patient, I'm liable for that. And I'm responsible for a HIPAA breach now. So I don't want that mechanism in place. I, I don't want to, I'm going to be doing millions of these over the course of a year or two. A couple of them will be HIPAA breaches. So there's a lot of liability issues on that side too. But that combination of all those things, it just, at the end of the day, it, it gives nothing to the doctors and it just costs them a lot in terms of liability and, and missed opportunity. I, I'm kind of smiling right now, Troy, because I'm saying, well, there's this whole push to drive paper charts out and drive it into the digital world. But then you just had an amazing takedown of why digital health records are probably not good for a doctor or probably not good for a patient. It was supposed to make things easier, faster, better, Troy. What happened? Well, they, I think in some worlds they really have. Provider to provider data exchange is flourishing. We are doing tens of millions of record exchanges a month today between providers. So if I'm going to, you know, here's an example, one medical is a customer of ours. Every time you go to one medical, now that particle's hooked up, you don't have to fill out that piece of paper when you walk in. You don't have to go through 10 questions with the doctor. Every time you come back, we can show you updates. We can do notifications if you go somewhere else. Um, we can do a lot of value-added services that can reduce risk, identify trends, ultimately improve health outcomes for those providers by giving them the, you know, distilled, actionable insights on a patient and just eliminate all the paper and manual crap that everybody's so fed up with. So like, there is good happening here, right? There is still a lot to gain, though. And I think consumer access is the key to that. And I can go into why I think that is the big unlocker. And I think that if once consumers have the right to access their data in the same way that I'm talking about, this kind of flips healthcare upside down in a lot of ways, in good ways. Well, let's go there, right? You can't just open that up and leave that dangling there. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> I'm going to take the bait, Troy. I'm going to absolutely take the bait. You know, it's funny. I forgot. I, I, for, I actually forgot. <laughs> I don't remember what I was going to no. Um So the, the analogy I always think about is um, if you're familiar with a company called Plaid, in the fintech space, they did something similar. They connected to all the banks, uh, Bank of America, JP Morgan, Chase, whatever. And they built one API and one contract. And so all of a sudden, for the first time ever, developers could go build applications that could exchange information with every bank in the United States. And because of that, we got Venmo, and we got Mint, and we got Robinhood, and we got Coinbase, and Bitcoin exchange stuff. You wouldn't have those solutions without Plaid. It wouldn't exist. The same thing should theoretically happen in healthcare because it puts the power back in the consumer's hands. Right now, every developer and startup out there is ultimately building a solution for a payer or for a provider today. They're not building things for consumers. Consumers are not the ones deciding or, or spending money. So if you can all of a sudden say, you know what, we now have the ability to control this information and give it to developers to build things for consumers, we should theoretically start having developers and startups building things for consumers in healthcare, mm -hmm. not insurance companies. It's a really interesting flipping of what's important. And it's away from coding and it's two valuable experiences, on-demand cost efficiencies and things like that. And it's remarkable. And again, I appreciate your insight on that because there's so many people that I talk to that are like, oh, we're, we're just consumer centric, right? We want to get the consumers to have skin in the game. We want them to understand, you know, how to manage their diabetes, how to do this. We're giving them the in-home apps to be able to communicate with doctors. And so there's a lot of just, I guess, lip service or people thinking they're doing the right things. But then you talk about their business model and exactly like you said of, well, yeah, this is something that a doctor needs to put in their office that their patients would have access to. And, 
it's almost this mentality. And again, I'm saying this from a world where every once in a while I'll get somebody when I talk about what you know Freedom HealthWorks does and, and what our Freedom Doc Clinics do from the from the direct care standpoint. They're looking at this and saying, "Why well, already pay for insurance? I already pay for healthcare. Why would I pay anything more?" And so I'm totally, I, I totally sympathetic to you know an entrepreneur sitting there and saying, "I want to revolutionize consumer healthcare." Yet I'm banging my head against the table because there's no consumer out here who's willing to pay and take control of that. Well, this is where American innovation is good, right? So, like Venmo, free service, doesn't cost anybody a penny to use Venmo. And it's because they make a bunch of money by holding your cash and investing it on the side. So like, I think technology innovation is one thing, but business model innovation is another. And that's why I think where things get interesting. I think direct-to-consumer healthcare today in the United States is made for wealthy people, like full stop. <laughs> it's we have fertility. some people that would it's, argue, you know, would argue with that one, but it's, we're, we're still small, Troy. I will fully say that we are like 1% or 2%. Oh, yeah. 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 We're growing. <laughs> definitely exceptions and don't get me wrong and i think anybody that can crack that code is the winner like if you can figure that one out like major kudos to you but like typically it's a direct to cons- it's a b2b to c or a b2c or i've seen some business models now that are like directly to consumer to business or something like it's like flipping the the b2b b2c thing around um but like we have to innovate these business models too at the end of the day right like it's not just the tech absolutely and you talk about you know going into what the term is, you know, value-based healthcare right now. And I've always been a little spongy, I guess, on that definition. I'm like, well, okay. So I'm curious, you know, when you talk about value-based healthcare and, and how that inter- interacts with Particle Health, what does that really mean to you? It's a good question. So when we started Particle, we didn't necessarily know who our target customers were going to be. I thought, for example, telemedicine companies were going to be like great options for us because you sign up for a telemedicine visit, you've got, you know, 10, 15 minutes with them, and they're trying to solve a problem for you, prescribe a med, whatever it is. And my, my assumption was, if we can get you all the medical records to that doctor, it can accelerate that process, it can result in higher quality care. And you can fill that prescription in half the time, because you everything's in front of you at your fingertips. They didn't care. They just didn't care. They don't care if the outcome's better, they don't care if the experience is better. They just want to fill the script and move on to the next one. The organizations that do care are value-based care groups because they are financially responsible for you. So if you end up at the ER, it's coming out of their pocket. If you end up having surgery, it's coming out of their pocket. They want to do everything they can to prevent you going to the ER and having a surgery. So they need this information to identify the folks that are at risk of going to the ER next week. And that's where Particle comes in and plays a very critical role. So there's, there's two types of mentalities. There's the ones that are transactional businesses, fee-for-service, and there are others that are outcome-based and financially responsible for your health, value-based care. So we made that shift, and, and that's been off to the races there. So we work with some of the best value-based care companies out there. Oak Street Health, for example, IPO'd a couple of years ago, doing really amazing stuff. I think they just got bought by CVS recently. I can't even remember. They're one of our customers. I should know this. So like that model works better because we are aligned with helping out health outcomes out. I like it in principle, but it's still going back to what we're talking about from the, the, the business model of it, right? Like in my world, like, you know, it revolved around physicians. Like that's, that's it. Physicians are out there. They're caring for their people. If you have somebody where you recommend a care plan and they just don't follow it, what are you going to do? Right. And that's where it's coming in. And I, I like talking to chief medical officers at hospitals, and I say, 
what does this mean to you? You know, what is what does the word quality mean to you and this kind of stuff? But what's always curious, cause I asked him about these different payment models and I'm saying, what are you guys doing? Are you talk, are you doing like wellness clinics with employers? Like what's going on? And they always say, you know, we'll probably see nursing homes and physical therapy centers that have our branding on it because we can't afford anybody to be readmitted because of that model. So I'm like, mm-hmm. interesting, interesting, right? So there's there's people who are trying to apply unique solutions to it. I, I tend to be a purist, Troy. So that's why I'm like, well, why not just use dollars and cents? <laughs> I mean, I can't argue with you, but if we're going to pick between value-based care and fee-for-service, which one would you pick? I would change the name of fee-for-service. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I like that. I, it's concierge. Yeah, it's a little like Orwellian in the in the fact that it's like, well, that's that's kind of double speak here, you know. It's if I walk up to you and I'm a doctor and I'm like, hey, I'm gonna give you, you're gonna charge me based on the service. Great, this sounds awesome. But then you have a death by a thousand cuts and surprise bills and all this kind of stuff. Like it's out of hand. Right? Yeah, so we we get into some like double, you know double lab testing and repeat repeat stuff just for the money. And it gets yeah. a little tricky on that side too, yeah. Yeah, and now to your point, like if I walked up to somebody and said, hey, I need to have a knee surgery or you know, something I've talked about in the show before, like maternity care for a baby, I want a package price. I'm totally on board with that because that happens, right? Usually you have to pay with cash and usually that's insurance free. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's different uh, different angles uh, that could come to play in that one. Troy, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to hear from our sponsor here. Quick message from Freedom Doc. Physician burnout is a killer. It is driving our best and brightest out of medicine. The only solution to burnout is to be your own boss. The easiest way to be your own boss is join the Freedom Doc Physician Network. Freedom Doc will fully finance your practice so that you can enjoy a healthier lifestyle, take better care of patients, and spend more time with your family. You focus on patients, Freedom Doc focuses on your business. So if you're ready to be your own boss, visit our website, freedomdoc.care, to learn more and schedule a consultation with one of our experts. Freedom Doc, accessible concierge healthcare. Back to our episode with Troy Bannister, CEO of Particle Health. Troy, we're talking a lot about health data, what it is, why it really pisses people off, how patients can access it, who actually owns the data versus who's going to pay for it. Healthcare innovation. We've covered a lot of ground here in the first 20 minutes or so. I want to st- take a step back, focus a little bit more on you and your background. You used to be an EMT. You mentioned before that you went to medical school. Walk us through your journey and how you ended up here. Hated med school. So I, I guess the long story short is uh, my math teacher in high school was an EMT when he was in college and told us all these crazy stories. So first thing I do when I get to college is sign up to become an EMT. And I was in business school, fell in love with medicine through EMTing on weekends, holidays, you know, whatever I could really get in a a shift or two, fell in love with it. So switched from business school to pre-med, absolutely destroyed me. (laughs) Uh, Got lucky, um, got into med school, went out to the East Coast. And within a year, I was like, nope. And for a lot of these reasons, right? It it was, hey, this job is not exactly what I thought it was going to be. There's a lot of baggage that comes along with this. It's not just the beautiful aha moments that you get once every now and again with with a you know a special case or a special patient or the ability to actually help somebody profoundly, right? It's just it's it was it was more few and far between than I thought it was going to be. And I always joke, you can call my mom if you want to hear the details on this decision, but bailed out. Ultimately, got a master's degree in biophysics of all things with the credits I had accumulated. Um, took that up to New York 
and did clinical research at Mount Sinai for a couple of years. At the time, they were kind of experimenting with this thing called mHealth, which stood for mobile health. Uh, this is before the digital health phrase even was a thing. And we were doing simple stuff. It was like text message-based medication reminders. And we were proving that patients were not coming to the ER as much. And I was like, my God, why are we not using the cell phone or the internet in healthcare? Um, and this is, you know, back in 2011, 2010, 2012-ish. So I joined a small venture capital firm out here in New York called Startup Health. It was like small checks, two people in a garage phase investments, and high volumes of them. When I was there for three years, we invested in something like 200 companies. So it was just massive amounts of, of deals. And the, the benefit of that was I got to meet a ton of entrepreneurs, a ton of other investors. I was seeing what was working, what was not working, and ultimately how to start a healthcare company in the United States. And then ultimately, the core problem I kind of, I kind of identified across all of them was we are bootstrapping an innovative, innovative solution. We don't have a lot of money, but we also simultaneously have no idea who these patients are walking in our door. Um, our virtual door or our brick and mortar door, whatever they were building. And when I looked around, I saw companies, like I mentioned before, like Plaid and Stripe and Twilio. And this new emerging model that seemed to be working really well was this idea of an API. And an API is, it stands for an application programming interface. And essentially what that means is it's a tool for developers to build on top of. Um, it does a function. It's how computers talk to each other, just to take that down, just to real simple terms. How, how software talks to each other. Yeah. Very good. And so the function that I was obsessed with was, can this API do something really simple? You put in someone's information and you get all their medical records back from across the country. No caveats, right? It's fast, it's cheap, it's affordable, it's structured, it's standardized, it's easy. And so we did that. And, and it was hard and there was a lot of ups and downs that I can recant over a large alcoholic beverage. Uh, but today, 90% of our API queries result in a return. We find an average of 155 files per patient per search, and it takes about 30 seconds to do a round trip of collecting that data, packaging it together, and standardizing it to what's called FHIR, or Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources, which is the national kind of standard these days. Did that shock you, what you just said, as far as those numbers of you input somebody's name, and you find that their information is scattered across so many different systems? That seems like a big number to me. Yeah, um, it wasn't always this way, right? Like when four years ago in the early days, I'd say that number was 25%. I think probably 30% of our queries resulted in data and we were probably finding 30 records per patient per search back then. And it's it, we've been able to build it up over the years into critical mass. What's your reception when you're, when you're working or you, when you talk to a hospital or talk to EMR and saying, hey, we want to build access into here for people outside of your system? What's what, How do they respond to that? So we don't interface with providers directly. We interface with EMRs um, mostly. Uh, there's also state HIEs and some other types of groups that we connect into. I talked about info blocking earlier. There's another rule that is relatively new, and it's called TEFCA. And it stands for the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement. It's kind of two pieces. The Trusted Exchange Framework, is it's a government-sponsored initiative. And basically, it's standardizing the way that EMRs talk to each other and exchange information with each other. The common agreement is standardizing the legal the legal contracts between the sharing organizations. So what's really nice about info blocking and TEFCA in combination is we can go to an EMR today, basically, and say, you have to give us access because of info blocking, and you have to do it technically because of TEFCA, 
and you have to sign this common agreement because of Tefka. So there's no more room for them running in circles, having proprietary contracts, having different standards, or just the flexibility to say no. They can't do it anymore, or they're info blocking or not participating in Tefka. So the timing of this has been really good in that we've been able to leverage these new regulations and policies to go build up this critical mass of, of access. Do any of those EMRs try to charge you or give you some type of runaround? We do pay lots of money every year. So we still can't point the, the lawyers to that one and say, hey, how about, how about this one goes away too, huh? Look, there are reasonable fees incurred. <laughs> I'll give them that. It always, okay, here's the data, but we're not going to block you, but we're just going to charge you again. It keeps coming down to that, right? It's, I mean, at the end of the day, they're, they're handling millions of requests and returning millions of documents. And that is a service they're giving us. So like, I can't really argue too much on that front. Troy, you've self-labeled yourself as an optimist um, about the future. <laughs> I'm gonna that was that. Wednesday. I'm gonna, that's fair <laughs> enough. I'm going to bring this into rate your optimism about the future of healthcare, scale of one to 10. And I'm going to leave it very generic. Ooh, healthcare generally speaking? Mm-hmm. Oh, God. As an industry. Not, not the ability of an American physician to be able to you know, provide world-class care, because we know that's usually going to be the case. But just as an industry of what you've been able to see from, you know, I mean, you've been in the belly of the beast, right? You've been to medical school. You've been on the VC side of it. You've been on the entrepreneur side of it. You've interacted with EMRs on the technology side of it. I mean, you've seen a good chunk of what I'm going to consider the healthcare value chain all the way up. Are you optimistic? Are you, are, you, are you happy about what you've been able to see and do? Unless something changes, um, single payer system, AI t- really takes off and proliferates in, in positive ways, then if, if those things, if nothing changes, I am not optimistic. I think there will be an insane amount of wealth generated from creating inefficiencies that ultimately result in poor outcomes for patients. I really do. I, that's a dark thing to say. I think we're- It's a dark thing to say. <laughs> We're already there. Yeah, I mean that's what's happening, right? It's that's 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 where the money's made. Yeah, we're already there. We basically have well, the government pays most of the bills right now, so we're not too far away from a single payer. And plus there's, you know, well, four major insurance companies that operate kind of like that monolith there. So Yeah. I don't know. I I don't know if going off that end is going to be the best for for patients out there, but I like what you were talking about earlier of how do we build models that put the consumer first? How do that's a very interesting topic, and that's a very interesting. Um, you mentioned, you know, grabbing grabbing a beer and, and getting little creative meetings with that one. But that's the kind of stuff that's near and dear to my heart, right? Like, how do we put patients first? Let me take a step back. How do we show patients that they can actually make a difference? I, I guess that's the biggest thing, and we run into that a lot, right? Because we we do a ton of consumer marketing localized, and people are just like, "Wow, I, I never knew I had another option to go see a doctor. I thought I." had to have insurance to go access a doctor. And we're just like, oh my gosh, this is so strange where this messaging has come from. It just manifested itself in our heads. I have a biased opinion. And my biased opinion is if you can't get access to your medical data, then you can't go choose where you go get care. And so me personally, the number one problem right now, and this is very biased, but it's how do I get the right to access my damn medical data? How do I use, how do I leverage my data to go get better care other places? Either qualifying for a program or reducing my cost of insurance by proving that I'm healthy, underwriting. Like there's a lot of things you should be able to do with that that you can't today. 
So how do I, as an individual, I complain, I submit a, a complaint to CMS and ONC and the Office of Civil Rights that says, why am I not, even with all the rules that you've rolled out over the last three, four years, still not able to get my data? So what are you going to do about it? You've rolled, you've rolled the rules out. You spent probably tens of millions of dollars of taxpayer money developing these policies, but you're not making them happen. Why? 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 I don't, I, it mind boggles me. What I'm actually headed say? to DC next week to try to figure this out. <laughs> what do they say? DC? Yeah, all the agencies you just listed that you talked to, what do they say? They say it takes time, we're making progress, you'll like it's it's yeah, it's okay, but why not now? That's an election year, so yeah, so well we'll talk about that after November. Um we'll see what the next yeah, it's like it's, oh it's my gosh. Well, on one hand, like congratulations being one of those people that actually takes action to figure something out. And honestly, Troy, I don't think you're biased. Your advantage is, is that you know who to talk to or at least send a dead-end email into. Most people don't even do that, right? So I don't think you're biased in wanting to know yeah. what's in your charts and, and be able to say like, you know what? If my doctor at my hospital is not going to tell me if I'm at a higher likelihood of having XYZ or they're not listening to me or we see this a lot, like actually they've screwed something up and there's a typo mm-hmm. and maybe maybe my BMI is 19, but they put a zero on the end of it and <laughs> it's setting off all kinds of like alarm bells. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? Right. Or yeah. vice versa. Maybe, maybe you have somebody who is diabetic or pre-diabetic and there's, you know, they're not getting the treatment they need because there's a mistake. Like just being able to proofread those charts would move it a long way. hundred percent. But nobody's able to do that. Right. No, Every time you've gone to a doctor and they show you their screen and be like, look, does this look right? That would be nice. <laughs> little things, right, Troy? Just little little things. Little things here. Um, Troy, continuing on that theme of empowering consumers, let me ask you our final question here. You are the billboard czar of the United States. You can put one message up on billboards to all citizens out there. What is your message to them on how to improve healthcare? Destroy the fax machines. <laughs> That's that's a new one. I like that. That, that is how 90% of American healthcare data is exchanged today. That makes a lot of sense. There you go. So just every patient in the world, go in, make fun of your doctor for having a fax machine, see what they do about it. That's that's my call to action. <laughs> it's like the, uh, the office space scene, you know? I think everybody has to go do a local fax machine destruction party. <laughs> Troy Bannister, CEO of Particle Health. Troy, thanks for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. It was fun. That's going to do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com to catch previous episodes, subscribe to our mailing list, and visit our fantastic online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all of our episodes. Visit the shop and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced and managed by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. 
Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.